Today on Peace Talks Radio, the Rainbow Gatherings. There it is, the welcome home sign. Each year for over 35 years now, thousands have converged on National Forest land around the 4th of July to celebrate freedom and pray for peace. 10,000 people come together and to try and manifest that kind of intention. I'm not naive, but it can't hurt. (laughs) What have you heard about the Rainbow Gathering? Conflicting stories. One, that they're a threat. Another, that they're peaceful. So I came here to find out. We'll take you inside the 2009 event in New Mexico to find out if there are real peace lessons to be learned from the rainbow gatherings. Because how do the rainbows deal with somebody who comes here who's angry, who's yelling at people? What do they do? Hug them. You know, ask them if you'd like some tea. Um, Just kind of smile at them to see if they want to go swimming. Inside the rainbow gatherings. It's like going camping with 7,000 of your best friends. Today on Peace Talks Radio. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. On our program, we look at peacemakers throughout history and discuss strategies for resolving conflict nonviolently in our lives every day. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, and our co-founder, occasional host, and now field correspondent, Suzanne Kreider, had the idea for today's program. Two words she said to me, rainbow gathering. Suzanne is here in the studio with me now. Hi, Suze. Hey, Paul. So... What had you heard about the Rainbow Gathering that made you think it was a good Peace Talks radio topic? Maybe starting with what it is and how and why it started. The Rainbow Gathering started in July 1972 in Colorado. It was formed by a group of young people from the West Coast who wanted to create a temporary communal community. I'd heard about the gathering for years and uh, had this stereotypical view, oh, that's just a bunch of hippies in the mud. But a friend of mine who I met about a year ago told me that he went to the gatherings a lot and that there was really a more serious purpose. There are two purposes to the gathering. The first one is for a communal group to live peacefully together with each other and with the earth. The second purpose is for once these people gather, they pray for peace together. I thought those were two really strong reasons to try a Peace talk show. Yeah, and I agreed. So I remember you telling me gleefully one day that the 2009 gathering was going to be held in New Mexico near our show's home base here in Albuquerque and that you wanted to go. So how did you prep for it? I wanted to get more of an informational or theoretical background. So I did some research on the web. I found an amazing book by Mike Nyman called People of the Rainbow. He has a very, very detailed history. It was his doctoral dissertation. It's an ethnographic study of the rainbow people. Plus, he teaches on the college level. Exactly. He teaches American studies at the University of Buffalo. We talked with Mike Nyman from radio station WBFO near his home in Buffalo, New York. He started by comparing the Rainbow Gathering to other historic communal groups. The term utopia actually means no place. It stems from the Greek because you really can't have a utopia. But what the rainbows do is they aspire towards a utopia. They move themselves in that direction and create an example for society how we can move in that direction as well. Well, how close do you think they've gotten to a peaceful community? There's violence there, which is actually um, why it is, in fact, a peaceful community. 
if you have a society where there is no violence, then they actually are not confronted with violence and don't really have the opportunity to practice nonviolent conflict resolution. The rainbows, what really makes them rather unique among utopian societies is that they are non-exclusive. They accept everybody uh, under, under you know, rainbow ideology, everybody with their belly button and those people without belly buttons are rainbows. So if you just show up at the rainbow gathering, including if you're a, uh, a police officer who might not actually be there to participate, if you show up at a rainbow gathering, rainbows see you as a rainbow. And included in this group would be violent junks who most folks would rather not associate with. But what they do is they provide Rainbow with the challenge of how do we confront this violence nonviolently. And if you look at the, you know, the 37-year history of the Rainbow family, there's really some remarkable um, transformations, personal transformations, whereby people who originally came to the Rainbow Gathering as alcoholics who are violent, who actually wouldn't enter the Rainbow Gathering, they would camp on the outskirts in something called the A-Camp, eventually, over the years, migrated into the Rainbow Gathering. Some people have spent, uh, you know, decades working in Kitty Village, for instance, in the, in the child care center or cooking. So there's a lot of transformations that do take place where there has been some success. And there's a lot of areas where there just hasn't been success like any other, you know, project. It is a utopian community. And there's an excerpt from your book I'd like you to read on the bottom of page 204 about what makes the Rainbow Gathering unique. Could you read that for us, Mike? Sure. It has no permanent settlement or land base, no assets, no formal organization, charismatic profit, hierarchy, or identifiable leadership. It is non-sectarian and maintains no selective criteria to determine membership. It requires no material investment or personal sacrifice from recruits. It has no work routines or requirements. It does not encourage, discourage, or attempt to coordinate sexual relations. It does not require ideological conversion nor attempt to control child-rearing. By all indications, looking at historical precedents, the family should have collapsed shortly after its inception in the early 1970s. I'm going up to the gathering, and I'm really curious what it's going to be like to not have anybody in charge. There's basically no boss, you know, and that's really different than most of society. Um, There's a boss at work. You go into a store. There's a boss you can complain to. How does that work to not have a boss? You're the boss, Suzanne. You're in charge. Oh, good. Right? <laughs> but you're the boss of you, and you're the boss of everything that you, you can potentially have control over. So, you know, the way it works in Rainbow, and this is also looking at the Rainbow economy in a lot of ways, is if you see something that needs to be done normally in, in, in outside society, what Rainbow's term is Babylon, normally we say somebody should, right, and they fill in the blank, somebody should do something about this. Um, that you don't, you don't really use phrases like that at rainbow gatherings. If you see something that needs to be done, you do it. Um, it's even the way the rainbows police themselves. The Shantasina, the rainbow police, is actually a body of the whole. You know, um, if, you, if you see a problem, then suddenly you're Shantasina, uh, which is why you have that feeling of safety and security at a rainbow gathering. It, it's not like... You're anonymous in a city. You cry for help and people will call 911 and look out the window and hope for the best. You know, if, if a child is on the trail lost, suddenly everybody becomes, becomes a co-parent. Everybody becomes a helper. Uh, if, if you're complaining that the latrines aren't dug deep enough, then you should ask for a shovel. And, you know, some people will be slackers, what the rainbows call drainbows. And just kind of like other people will cook for them, other people will dig the latrines, make the trails and so on. 
and, and they'll just kind of kick back. But the folks who really seem to be getting the most out of the gathering are the folks who really work. So there's, there's a kind of reward there. Mike Nyman, it sounds like even though the Rainbow Gathering is a short-term experience of utopia, what could families learn from that? Patience. Because uh, I think one of the things they can get from the temporary autonomous zone is that this moment in time will pass. So eventually this problem will transform into something else. It might get worse. It might go away. It's just a matter of, of patience and looking forward. And then also, you know, you have to go beyond the, the, the Taz theory and, and just start looking at the rainbow's commitment to nonviolence. What is the alternative to shouting? What is the alternative to anger? You know, how can I harmonize this? Ultimately, the person that you're angry at, if you really think about the situation and what they're feeling, you wind up feeling sorry for them, hence the, the drainbow. You know, instead of being angry that you're cooking for and cleaning up after this person, you just feel sorry for this person who you know is not really having that rewarding of an experience because how rewarding can it be to just kind of like, you know, not really take care of yourself? I'm so curious going up there what it's going to be like. So there's going to be eight to 10,000 people and nobody's going to be screaming at each other. So what do they do instead of yelling at each other? Oh, no, no. I didn't say nobody's going to be screaming at each other. <laughs> you know, you're going to probably in, in, encounter lots of people screaming at each other. And, and the interesting thing, you know, as, as, a, as a student of nonviolence is to look at how does the screaming end, Right. So you want to look for where people are going to be yelling and screaming because it's very stressful. You have all kinds of people coming in. And especially right now, it's a healing gathering. So lots of people just come to the gathering because they need healing in many ways. So you get, you know, a lot of street people, a lot of people who have been homeless, a lot of people who have incredible stress in their life, a lot of people who, who are, you know, are powerless in their life, who have been abused, you know, chronically showing up at the rainbow gathering. So you do get people who are tweaked, right, people who are, you know, stressed out and, and screaming. And what's interesting to really look at is how do the rainbows deal with somebody who comes there who's angry, who's yelling at people? What do they do? Hug them. You know, ask them if you'd like some tea. Um, just kind of smile at them. You know, see if, see if they want to go swimming. Uh, you know, it, it really put a hand on a shoulder if that's appropriate or not put a hand on a shoulder if that's appropriate. You know, it, it really what, – what's fascinating – is a spontaneity of the creativity in confronting the specifics of a potentially violent conflict. Do Rainbow family members take these concepts and techniques out into their daily lives when they go back to Babylon? Hopefully. Um, Nonviolence can be very simple. Um, if, if somebody confronts me in the street, there's a potential for violence, and I turn around and I flee... That is a creative, nonviolent solution. It's a nonviolent reaction, but it doesn't really help them. It doesn't really change their behavior, does it? It helps them because it prevents them from being in a violent situation. Okay. You know, if somebody wants to stab me in the street and I prevent him from stabbing me by running away, you know, I've just saved this person from having to go through the criminal justice system as an assailant. Mm. One of the things that the Rainbow is, is teaching, the Rainbow family, is especially for, for men – is to back away from that machismo training that we've been receiving all of our lives, especially through popular culture and media, that I can't allow somebody to insult me in the street. 
that I have to go, you know, I have to go to, to the death here in, in, in this conflict. That's Mike Nyman, author of the book People of the Rainbow, A Nomadic Utopia. Today on Peace Talks Radio, we're exploring the phenomenon of the rainbow gatherings, temporary intentional communities held annually since 1972 on public lands across the U.S. and occasionally internationally. More about this effort to promote peace, harmony, and freedom with Suzanne Kreider, who spent some time at the 2009 gathering in New Mexico, right after this break. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls with Suzanne Kreider, who's leading us through her journey into the 2009 Rainbow Gathering. You can hear Suzanne's entire Rainbow Gathering diary at our website, peacetalksradio.com. We're getting some highlights on today's show. As Suzanne said, each year since 1972, thousands of people have assembled in the first week of July in an outdoor setting to practice living in harmony with each other and with the land and to pray for peace. That outdoor setting is usually national forest land near some community. So Suzanne, in 2009, how did this whole thing unfold for the event in New Mexico? The planning for New Mexico had begun early in 2009. They had narrowed it down to uh, a spot near Taos, uh, Tres Piedras, and the location that they ended up selecting, which is near a small community named Cuba. Because the gatherings are always held on Forest Service land, the Forest Service requires that any large gathering of people sign a permit. Now, historically, the gathering hasn't signed permits because they feel they have a constitutional right to gather without having any kind of paperwork. In 2009, it was reported that a woman named Lisa Law from northern New Mexico did sign a Forest Service permit. So in the eyes of the Forest Service, the gathering was legal. And Lisa is known for being a member of the Hog Farm, which was a group that participated in Woodstock. Right. So the next step was you'd heard there'd be a planning meeting in Cuba some weeks before the gathering and wanted to go up there. What happened up there? The meeting in Cuba was an opportunity to bring all the stakeholders together so that they could meet each other and the local people could ask questions of both the Forest Service and of the Rainbow People. Here's a little bit of how that sounded. My name is Catherine Gladwin. I'm here because I'm curious. Are you our resident? Yes, I've lived in Cuba about 20 years. What have you heard about the Rainbow Gathering? Well, conflicting stories. One, that they're a threat, another, that they're peaceful. So I came here to find out. Like Catherine, I'm uh, curious as to what's going on. My name is Laurie Drysdale. Uh, I've been up the hill twice already. 
to kind of uh, you know speak to them, hear the drums, and all this good thing they're saying about them. But uh, I had a very bad negative uh, aura. Well, whilst both times, not just once. Apart from that, I just want to hear what's going to be said tonight, and then after tonight, maybe I'll make I'll have a different view on life. Uh, but right now, they better give me a little bit more convincing. The uh, Rainbow People. Uh, my name is Richard Velarde, and I'm the mayor for the village of Cuba. And how are you feeling about the Rainbow Gathering coming in? You know, up until this point, we really uh, haven't had much problems with them, I guess, right now. It's kind of like learning as we go. What are your biggest concerns that you're on the lookout for? My primary concern is the health and the safety of uh, the community. What are you hearing from local citizens about their reaction? You know what? Everything, everybody's just been kind of just quiet about it. Uh, that's the reason I held the meeting, to, so I can get their comments and concerns and, and any questions that they might have. Good evening. Thanks, everybody, for being here. We really appreciate the town of Cuba for hosting us, and uh, we want this to be a really outstanding, smooth, profitable, healthy, and as comfortable as we can event. I hate to disappoint you, but contrary to news reports, there are not going to be 75,000 people coming through. <laughs> There are not going to be 40,000 people coming through. The last few years we've had between 9 and 12,000 people, and I think that that's a reasonable estimate. There's no question there have been problems in the past, but we are off to the best foot we have been off, maybe in our 38 years. My name is Stella Sandoval, and uh, we've seen a lot of uh, people asking for money. Are they allowed to do that? I guess anyone has the right to ask, you don't have to give it to them. Um, and I'm sorry for that impact, we can't control everybody, but you know, we try to control the people we can the best we can. And like uh, Garrick was saying, we will have some people in town who will help to monitor that. And looking at your websites and seeing some presentations, I see that you have some fairly elaborate buildings. Are you indeed cutting forestry trees and, and how are you dealing with getting those those buildings built so that you protect Mother Earth as you talk? Good question. Um, there are some elaborate structures. Honestly, some, some of the uh, performance areas build box seats two and three stories tall. I mean, they're not stories like you have them here, but several layers. The rule of thumb is nothing that isn't dead and down already. If you need the ambulances up in, in the mountain, that means both ambulances would go up. What's going to be the response time in case we have an emergency? Uh, gener generally, we do our own transport. So it's not like we're going to try to use your facilities because we're, both Garrick and me, actually, are from New Mexico. We've been here, I've been here 30 years, and we're aware, very aware of the impact on the local community and the smallness of it. Um, but generally, we do our own transport. Um, on the wall, on that side, are press clips from past years Mostly what I've posted there, what we've posted, are after-the-fact press clips. Not about the 4th of July and about the, the events going on, but they're from the middle of July looking back and saying, you know what, we all got excited and in the end they cleaned up really beautifully and they left and it wasn't nearly as frightening or as difficult as we thought. 
My name is Gary Stubbs. I came here to help uh, alleviate any fears that the local population might have about this onslaught of the Rainbow Gathering that's coming. What do you want people to know who've never been to the gathering about how it promotes peace? I think it promotes peace by demonstrating peaceful cooperation. People of a diverse background, Christians of various denominations, Krishnas, Buddhists, Hindus, Islamics, um, uh, Sikhs, uh, Sunnis, pagans, uh, people of their own particular religious bent, all come to the gathering from all over the world to work together cooperatively with no one in charge to build a city dedicated to peace. And I think by demonstrating peace, we show the world that it is possible. It isn't a pipe dream. We can live together in peace because for a few weeks in New Mexico in 2009, we're going to show you it can be done. What have you learned personally about how to apply from the gathering to your own life and peacemaking in your life? Um, being more patient with people. Uh, I've, I've also found that giving a person a sense of accomplishment, showing them that what they've done now isn't just something they get a paycheck for, but when they, when they, when they perform a service in the family, they can see the good work. They can see the, the benefit. A person who digs an outhouse understands that he's keeping the community safe by controlling our waste. Somebody who goes out and cuts firewood gets to eat the food that was cooked on that firewood, gets the joy of watching others eat the food that was cooked on that firewood. And it builds that sense of community that we don't find in the 21st century in our cities. So a little bit there from a public meeting in Cuba before the Rainbow Gathering. Now, not long after that meeting, I turned the local TV news on and heard some tease for a story coming up like, they're gathering for peace, but they're getting tickets on KOB TV. A small group of rainbow people outside the courthouse, dozens more inside facing the magistrate judge, forest rangers issuing 120 violation notices this weekend. So law enforcement authorities issuing these tickets, has this been typical of recent gatherings? It wasn't in the early years, but it's been escalating in recent years, according to a lot of rainbow family members I talked with. The Forest Service says they're enforcing laws and they're trying to make it a more peaceful event that's better for the environment. And I talked with a member of the Forest Service that you'll hear later. I also asked Mike Nyman about it. People driving to a rainbow gathering, for instance, driving through maybe 40 miles of dirt roads would wind up getting stopped because of dirt on their license plates or on their windshields. And then the stop allows the police to then, you know, use drug-sniffing dogs. So you wind up, um, you know, searching thousands of people for drugs, and and there are some busts, as there would be if you stopped every car on the New York State Thruway and sniffed it with a drug-sniffing dog. Uh, Police have right now regularly uh, go through these gatherings, which are essentially religious events, right? You know, you're gathering ultimately to pray for world peace. Go through with what rainbows now call the train, um, you know, four, five, six ATVs with uh, federal law enforcement officers, you know, uh, fully armed, fully dressed in, in what appears to be almost like riot gear, standing on these things, riding through gatherings, and then picking out almost at random different tents, converging on them for what I, I believe to be are illegal searches. And and this, you know, 
is just harassment because I camp in national forests and I, I, I don't really have to um, expose myself to any of these things if I'm not going to camp with the rainbows. Well, how is the family responding to this increased involvement by the Forest Service? Um, the rainbows you take it nonviolently. Uh, there's a, a quote from uh, a rainbow early. Rainbows like to refer to people who have been with the family for a long time as earlies as opposed to elders because elder denotes some kind of hierarchy. So rainbow early, uh, Garrick Beck, talks, for instance, about the, um, the 1987 Rainbow Gathering in North Carolina, which really was a turning point. That's where the Forest Service became extremely, extremely nasty in coordination with local police and, and harassed, harassed rainbows. And, and, and Garrick, one piece that he had written, um, gives you a list of like 15 different horrible provocations that the Forest Service had engaged in and, and then responds with how the rainbows didn't react you know, when they impounded our water line, we didn't turn around and throw rocks, stuff like that. I think that the Forest Service helps make the rainbows more nonviolent by confronting them with provocation for violence. How long do you think they'll be able to stay nonviolent? Well, let me go back to last year in Wyoming. Um, a very strange thing happened. Uh, for whatever reason, Forest Service agents with splatball guns shooting pepper grenades or some kind of irritant white powder in, in little little grenades, went in and then shot up a daycare center. And all I could say is if you really, really, really want people to riot, mess with their kids. If that didn't cause rainbows to react violently, I, I can't really conceive of what would. But they didn't. They stayed calm. They stayed calm. And it's really interesting because I was there with the film crew and the film crew was nowhere near this event. Ultimately, you know, for making the film, we wound up with ample footage because even though you're dealing you're in the middle of the wilderness with a bunch of people you might want to term as Luddites, um, when this went down, suddenly all these cell phones came out and little, little video, you know, little digital cameras shooting video, basically video being shot by the people who are under attack. I say the closest you got to a violent response is there was verbal, if you want to call that violence, I don't know, but people were yelling back. You know, some people got angry and shouted obscenities, which is not nonviolence. It exasperates the situation that causes the police to feel they're under attack more. But no, in fact, you had Rainbow Shantasina, peacekeepers, and they created a line between the police and the crowd of people who are yelling at the police, what are you doing here? Stop shooting, stop, you know. And they had their backs to the police, had their fronts to the crowd, calming people down, and they were all shot in the back. He shot at me when I was blocking hippies from attacking him. We got witnesses, right? So what you're hearing is audio from one of these amateur videos taken during this Wyoming incident, uh, taken off of YouTube. To watch the whole video, it's, it's pretty chaotic. We have a link to it on our website, peacetalksradio.com. 
you do see what look like gathering peacekeepers moving toward the armed forest service people, oming and uh, trying to make peace, trying to get in between them and uh, agitated rainbows. Uh, some wind up in handcuffs. It doesn't seem like many details are available as to what precipitated it. That's right. It's reported that it started with the Forest Service going into this particular area to make an arrest for some reason. A spokeswoman for the Forest Service was quoted in an AP story saying that about 400 rainbow people began to advance, and some were throwing sticks or rocks at the officers. It certainly is an example of this kind of uneasy energy between the Forest Service and the rainbows. I could feel it at the meeting, and I could feel it throughout the gathering. So we'll hear Suzanne's radio diary at the gathering right after this break. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls with Suzanne Kreider, who's leading us through her journey into the 2009 Rainbow Gathering. Rainbow Gatherings have been held since 1972 on public lands across the U.S., temporary intentional communities meant to promote peace, harmony, and freedom. July 3rd, I drove up to Cuba. It's about an hour and a half northwest of Albuquerque. I stopped in the town because I wanted to hear what some of the local residents had to say about the gathering, but almost nobody would talk to me. So I decided to head up to the site. But first, I thought it might be worth stopping at the Cuba Ranger Station, and I lucked out because I got to talk with Denise Ottaviano, an information officer with the Forest Service, who was really pretty upbeat. I think this year in particular, it's gone really well. We had a lot of planning that was done ahead of time with people that were planning on going to the to the gathering and we were able to work out a lot of differences a lot of concerns and on the ground things have been going really well um, we've been monitoring the kitchens and camps for proper sanitation and resource impacts and whenever there's been concerns we've been able to work it out just by talking to each other and not writing as many violation notices so it's been going really well our show is about making peace, and I'm curious what kind of strategies are important from your side that are helping you communicate clearly with the family. I think talking a lot beforehand really um, worked to our benefit and to the benefit of the people going to the Rainbow Gathering. We talked about things that we just couldn't, um, we couldn't bend our rules for. Um, we made some clear responsibilities and roles, what we would be responsible for, what the rainbows would be responsible for, and we're holding each other to those, to those responsibilities. 
And I think that we've been able to get assistance from the rainbows in working out a lot of those differences and a lot of those concerns. Like when we've had people that have refused to move their tent or, or get out of a riparian area, we've been able to go to them and said, okay, according to what we agreed upon, you said you would not do this. So they've gone to their own people and said, you do need to move. You need to do what the Forest Service is saying. So just a lot of cooperation, a lot of communication has really helped. I have just been in town about 10 minutes, but I have noticed a lot of state police cars. And I've also tried to interview local people here in Cuba, and they've been reticent to talk with me. Do you have a sense of how it's affecting the local community? There's mixed emotions. Um, Some of the restaurants and businesses here have been making a lot of money, and they're real happy the rainbows are here. Other businesses, like the convenience stores, um, have been having some problems with them. Um, Stealing paper products out of the bathrooms, um, eating out of the trash, um, panhandling, loitering, that type of thing. And so they've they've actually had to call um, the local police department on them for several occasions. So it's it's definitely mixed. It sounds to me like the permit is very important, but the permit doesn't solve all the problems. It just helps. Would it be accurate to say that the permit helps the Forest Service feel more engaged, like they want to work with rather than against the rainbows? We always want to work with the rainbows. Even when they don't sign a permit? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, And, you know, what's important to us is helping them have a gathering that is legal, safe, and has the minimal impact on the land. That's our goal regardless. But signing the permit makes it a lot easier for us to interact and manage the gathering. And it's just simply signing a permit and it's free. Could you give me some directions on how to get up there? Highway 126 to Forest Road 103. So here I am on, uh, wow, this must be, oh my gosh, I'm pulling into the base camp it looks like. Um, It's been about, there it is, the welcome home sign. People with guitars, people with no shirts, people with tie-dye t-shirts, people waving, people with hats, people on crutches, people with beat-up cars, people with fancy cars, people with backpacks. Somebody's slowing me down here. Hello, you know sir. Where going, lady? Pardon me? Um, uh, yeah, I was. Oh, that's not a microphone, is it? Yes, I'm with the media. Oh, you're talking. No. No? Turn it off? Yes. Okay. Okay, wow. wow. I wonder. If... I need Jimmy! Yeah, yeah, I think I have found A Camp. Because those people were definitely inebriated. <laughs> Everybody's so sweet, though. I just want to hug them and kiss them. License tags from all over. Wisconsin, Colorado, um, Arizona, California, Oregon, Washington, Arkansas, Pennsylvania, Texas. These are just all in a row. Hey! Hey! Oh, that's so sweet. He got so excited to see me. Love you! Love you. <laughs> I got parked, set up my tent, and started meeting people. Your name? Teriani Riggs. So, Teriani, how many gatherings have you been to? I've been to, this is my 16th national and my 18th year of gathering. What brings you back? 
Well, if you can imagine 20,000 people coming to the same place with the intention to treat each other as family, not just um, the lip speak and not necessarily succeeding in this, but with every single person having an intention to treat each other as family, that's an entirely different environment than I think any of us have experienced anywhere else. And I think you've experienced a little bit of that yourself here. There's, a, there's miracles daily because the intention is that every stranger is a family member, that this is actually home. And that's something when you get 20,000 people doing that as their prayer, as their meditation, whether they succeed or not, whether they're the abused drug user kid who ran away from home or whether it's the engineer who works for NASA, which we have everything here. If they all come together to believe this, then you have some of the most amazing magic you could have in the world right here. And that's why I come back every year. And you? I would be Jade Spratt, the doggy mommy, I suppose. Excellent. <laughs> Everyone Great. here has, you know, sort of uh, monikers, I suppose, you know. Right. And I think that, uh, that they evolve, I, from what I understand, sort of like in Native American tribalism where you're given a name at birth and then you mature and the tribe gives you a new name and so on and so forth. I see people's monikers evolving as they do things that are noteworthy and such, you know, they, uh, they get new names. There was a, a young man who I don't know his name, but him and I helped to put up the panels of the sweat lodge teepee in the main meadow. But he was so agile in climbing the poles barefoot and manipulating the ropes with his toes that he probably will forever be known as Monkey Boy. And that's what we call him, Monkey Boy. <laughs> Here's a woman in black boots. She's holding probably a one-gallon sterling silver bucket. She has a soup ladle. People are holding out their cups and bowls. She's ladling soup into it. Looks like a pretty thin broth with some vegetables. People are waiting patiently for her to come around. Looks like greens and maybe some potatoes in there. Hello, what's your name? It's Rory Ridley from Austin, Texas. The, the underlying energy here, I believe, is service to one another. The food that comes from the kitchens is prepared by people who love the people that they're serving. The food that's brought to the kitchens is brought with the expectation that it's going to be shared with everyone that comes. So everything that happens in the woods is volunteer, it's service-oriented. People gather wood for the fires, people bring water, people pick up the trash, and it's all done out of love, of that spirit of love. Hmm. It's sprinkling now, and the sky is looking like it's really going to rain. My name's Casey Diaz. Um, I'm a rainbow. What's the essential core that you really believe in for the gathering? As far as here, I mean, leaving the land how we found it. You know, there there will be people here a month after everybody's gone cleaning this up, picking out the little pieces of toilet paper, you know, tearing everything down, just walking around, picking up trash. And, you know... <coughs> sorry. Since we promote living with the land, we try to lead by example in that way. And if we can't do that, then everything after that doesn't mean anything, you know. If we can't hold our most basic idea to live with the land peacefully and leave it as we were, then <coughs> all the details after that, you know, mean nothing. Describe the tattoo on your back. 
It says HIV positive. I couldn't read it because awesome. I'm sitting I'm sitting next to you, so I just wanted you to describe it. Oh yeah. It's about how big? Um, it goes all the way across my back. I I try to bring my my message about that here. I you know I wear a sign on my front usually that states the same thing. Um, I'm not trying to scare people. I just I just want them to think about it and be more aware. You know I mean. It's just about making smarter decisions so you don't end up in my situation, you know. I, I don't want to see my friends and family go through potentially what I will. Um, and there are a lot of people out here who maybe don't consider the possibility. I'm the only person here with this tattoo, but I'm not the only person here with HIV. You know, I've had a number of people come up to me and tell me they also have HIV, you know, because I'm open about it. You know, and I just I just want them to be more comfortable. You know, I fight against the stigma of what it is. You know, people think if you get HIV, your life is over, and people give up. And I I try to I try to show them that that's not true. You, I still have a life. I'm far from you know over. You know, my main message is HIV, but the cores of what I believe in spread throughout every every life. Here comes the soup kettle. Would you like some salad? Absolutely. Would you like some salad? Thanks. Yes, I'm Maya Todorita. Oh my gosh. Where are you from, Maya? I'm from Tucson. <laughs> How many gatherings have you been to? I think, including this one, two. What do you like about them best? It's gathering. <laughs> How old are you? I'm eight. What's most fun about the gathering? It has a lot of activities and so many people share peace. Our show is about peace. How do you experience peace when you're at the gathering? What does it feel like in your body? It feels like a warm hot chocolate. <laughs> We're listening to Suzanne Kreider's audio diary from the Rainbow Gathering in 2009. Suzanne's in the studios with me. I'm Paul Ingalls producer for Peace Talks Radio. So Suzanne, July 4th is the penultimate moment for each gathering. What went down for you in 2009? Here's what normally happens. On the 4th of July, people wake up in silence. They remain in silence. They gather at the main meadow in a giant circle. If you can imagine thousands of people, three, five, 7,000 people in a giant circle in silence praying for peace. People wander in as they get up. I had been told that I had plenty of time, that I didn't need to rush down there because on rainbow time, things usually happen an hour or two late. Ideally, what happens is at noon, the silence ends with an ohm by five or 7,000 people. That lasts for about 10 or 15 minutes. That ends in a cheer that signals the beginning of the kitty parade which is this huge celebration. I decided, because so many people had told me not to rush and because it was raining so hard that I had time to get down there. But I missed it. It's kind of like sending a reporter to report on the takeoff of the shuttle, but they're still in the parking lot. <laughs> this is a reporter's nightmare, actually. It was, I was so embarrassed. I was talking to a guy under a tarp in Kitty Village. It was raining really hard. He wanted to investigate my microphone. I offered to let him listen to the microphone because he said he wanted to buy one just like it. 
Let me turn it down a little bit. That's good. That's amazing. Check one, two. Oh, turn it up a little bit. Then all of a sudden I realized it was about three minutes till 12. I started running down through Kitty Village. All of a sudden I hear this giant cheer. It sounds like cheering. I had missed the whole thing. It looks like the parade has started already. <laughs> there are children everywhere. Um, balloon hats. Um, dogs. Tie-dye blankets. <laughs> Almost like Halloween costumes. Clowns, spooks, lots of painted faces. Butterfly wings. So the kitty parade is coming through a break in the circle. The kids are getting a really big round of applause. There are very few umbrellas out here, guys. It's mostly just people getting wet. A lot of folks have hats on. Some have rain jackets, blankets. But most people are just smiling with really wet heads. I'd say it's a pretty steady downpour. Not too many people seem upset about it. <laughs> Not a lot of cringing or, oh, I, got, oh, I wish it wasn't raining. Oh, gosh, I just feel so happy. All the jubilation for children. How often do we see that? <laughs> just honoring children for being alive. What's your full name? Joshua David Marks. Where do you live, Joshua? Oregon. Um, how many gatherings have you been to? I don't know. How many? Five. Five. That's awesome. Um, why do you keep coming back? Because it's fun. What's the most fun about it? The parade. What do you like about the parade? There's a lot of people, and they're all happy. What's the best memory you have of any of the parades you've been in? Last year at Wyoming. Fourth of July. Our family had a lot of fun when we fire danced. You fire danced? Tell the listeners what that looked like. Uh, there's a stick with two balls of fire on the end and you dance with it. It sounds a little dangerous. No, it's, it's fun. So my show is about peace. What do you learn about peace from the Rainbow Gatherings? That you don't need to judge and everybody can be family. Anything else you want to tell our listeners? Because sometimes people think that the Rainbow Gathering is kind of strange or anything you want to tell our listeners about what really happens here and why it's important. No, it's just really fun and there's a lot of people and then everybody loves each other and we're all family. Thanks very much. What an awesome mother you are. Thank you so much. See, this is like why I'm so hopeful about the future. Wow, that was like a really unusually <laughs> loving child. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the sun is out and the rain is on its way. It's just huge gray clouds. Just standing around, waiting for the next scene. And what's your full name? Adam Garrett Clark. Adam, where are you from? From uh, the Bay Area, California, but right now I live in New York. 
you're an African-American man, and I know you don't speak for all African-Americans, but talk about um, the racial ratios here, because there aren't very many people of color here. Right. That's true. Um, Here, it does feel a little strange to be... Not only am I not wearing dreadlocks and all that, but I'm also a different color than everybody. So it's, it's, yeah, it is, it is uh, something to get over. How do you do that? How do you get over it? Or do you really get over it? I don't know. I mean, I guess like throughout, all through my life, I'm always, um, you know, a minority, you know, in my workplace, I'm the only black guy there. A lot, a lot of it is my own perception that I feel outside, you know, and maybe it's not that people actually feel that, you know, that I'm not like them or something. But that, that's also part of the Remo philosophy is that we're all of different creeds and shapes and sizes and colors and we all come together. My given name at birth was Luke Goldstein. Awesome. Other known as Alokananda. Alokananda. Our show is about peacemaking. What are you most looking forward to at this gathering as it relates to peace? I have a lot of peace within. That's what I strive to cultivate, and I'm just looking to share that with other people and find other, you know, other people that are holding that vibration of peace within themselves. I think there's a, a powerful change happening on our planet and that a lot of people that have chosen to come here are aware of the more profound, subtle spiritual changes that are happening in human consciousness right now and that is very much about peace and you know I think some people here are a little more on an escape escapism trip and others are really aware of what needs to change so I'd like to stimulate some insight or thoughts for people that are kind of stuck in a, a rebellious uh, culture that isn't necessarily looking to, to heal themselves or nurture themselves um, yeah, I'm just here to spread my light. It's a fascinating comment because you called it escapism. Mm-hmm. What makes you uncomfortable about that portion of society? You know, uh, I'll call it escape escapism on some level because there's an element of that, but there's also a tremendous courage that it takes to leave the known. And that I think a lot of these younger traveling, hitchhiking seekers, they know something's fundamentally wrong with the structures that we come from, but their approach is missing an element of inner responsibility, what I mean, emotional awareness, health-oriented practices. I think we're all ultimately looking for a consistency of fulfillment. And so there's something to be said about leaving the known, but balancing that also with responsibility, I think, is the key. That's the middle path that I'm trying to connect with other people that have jobs, but also, you know, are aware that there's this change happening. My name's Lee and I'm from Denver, Colorado. What is your major motivation for coming to the gatherings? I'm a people watcher. I go to the motorcycle rally in Sturgis, South Dakota for the same reason. It's a kaleidoscope of humanity. You can sit in one spot and never get bored because it's just a constant changing of what you're feeling and sensing in all the senses that you have. That's what it is here. Myself, I don't broadcast this, but I do not come here to pray for peace. I would feel that I'd be spinning my wheels. I'm not here to wish for peace. I feel that that's just, if I've got X amount of energy to wish for, to wish with, it's not going to be for peace because I think I'd be wasting 
I'd be emptying my wish bucket on something that isn't going to happen. So I wish for something that I consider realistic. I have a friend that's terminally ill. I wish her well. I, I really wish that. That's, I wish for things like that, stuff that's somewhat realistic to me. My name is Jennifer Simpson. Our show is about making peace. What do you expect to learn or take away about peacemaking from the gathering? Wow, that's a really good question. Um, well, one thing I've already kind of taken away is that peace really is a choice. I mean, it's a choice we make every single day in every interaction. You know, when um, I was up here earlier, uh, about 10 days ago, and um, I know there was like a domestic disturbance, <laughs> for lack of a better... And the way they dealt with it here was, you know, instead of like hauling off somebody and arresting them and throwing them in jail, they, you know, they surrounded them and ohmed and talked them down, basically, rather than being confrontational. It's more of like a, how can we heal this problem? And I don't know if that's always going to work. <laughs> it would be nice to think it would. And um, I also I also really enjoyed hearing um, Garrick Beck speak at the town meeting when he said that, um, you know, we come up here and pray for peace. And and then he kind of jokingly said, it hasn't worked yet, but but we're hopeful. <laughs> and, and I think, you know, I think that's the other thing to take away from this about peace. You know, okay. Probably on the 5th of July, the war in Iraq and the war in Afghanistan will not be over. I'm not naive, but it can't hurt. <laughs> and to have 10,000 people come together and to try and manifest that kind of intention, I think it's pretty powerful. I mean, you know, one small step can change the world, right? It's gotten kind of chilly, and um, I'm a bit wet. I'm going to head back up the hill and head out. Maybe I'll meet some people on the path. I'm sure I will. Everybody's got a story here. Maggie Seeley! <laughs> yes, I am. Would you two like to be interviewed? Come under my umbrella, dolls. I am Maggie Seeley, a citizen of the world and a resident of Albuquerque. I am Laura Eoberg, and I am a citizen of Albuquerque, New Mexico, and I'm a friend of the gathering. What would you say to people who think that, oh, it's just a bunch of freaks out here, and they're not really proving anything? Um, I'd say come, check it, come take a look. Come on down here. Everyone should come once in their life, whether you choose to, you know, co-create or be part of it, you know, but you should come and see um, what what is created down here. It's phenomenal. It's a lot of um, love and, and sweat, you know, for many, many people coming together and they're not making money at it. You know, they are doing it to create um, a space of connection, harmony and peace. I just think it's fabulous that we met a truck driver from Utah. I'm, you know, in the scale of, you know, social and economic and vocational um, realms, I'm sort of far away from a, a truck driver from Utah. But um, there we were, you know, catching shelter under the same tarp. And I'm thinking, well, I'm reminded that part of uh, the world needs to flatten around just hierarchy. So... That's what I take away. It doesn't matter how much education and money I have. Um, you know, we need to 
create enough for all. How do we flatten the hierarchy back home in Babylon? Well, you know, I think a lot of flattening the hierarchy is about um, getting out in your neighborhood and getting out with people that you share common needs with and the needs that you have, um, you know, that, that are aside from money. You know, which is like your vegetables and and your water and and ways to to um, you know create beauty and and entertain one another and keep your hope up. So, um, hoping to get out more in my neighborhood, hoping to get out you know in in other neighborhoods and just kind of meet with people around those really basic things and um, you know the the basic needs, the common needs that we share, which I believe in, includes peace. So, wow, quite a journey, uh, Suzanne, at the 2009 Rainbow Gathering. How did you feel coming out of the whole thing? This experience truly changed me. Hmm. I think people change in terms of their thinking and also in terms of their behavior. The way I think about people who are part of the hippie movement has changed, and the way I interact with people has completely changed. Two weeks ago, I was coming out of the grocery store. I saw two young men sitting on the ground up against the wall. A matter of months ago, I never would have spoken to them or made eye contact with them, but I recognized them as members of the family. I stopped and said hello. They said that their RV was broken down, that they'd been camping up in the woods for several weeks. I asked them if they were part of the gathering. They reluctantly said yes. When I told them I was up there too, it was an instant bond. I ended up talking to them for 20 minutes. I gave them some money. I gave them some food. Those are behaviors that I never would have done before. They called me sister. (laughs) We shared our names. I understand now. I'm not saying that the gathering is a panacea. I'm not saying that there aren't problems with it. But I have to just say that they are people who are trying to make peace. They're trying to learn how do people live together. How do people treat the earth in a peaceful way? And I have to give them a lot of credit for trying. And I have to say that if anything ever happens in the infrastructure of the United States and we're left without a lot of modern conveniences, I want to find some family members because those are the people who know how to live independently on the land as people did for thousands and thousands of years. Suzanne Kreider, thank you for taking us on your trip to the gathering. It was a delight. Suzanne recorded many hours of material at the 2009 gathering. A lot of great interviews we obviously didn't have time to hear today. But to get that more complete experience, you can visit our website, peacetalksradio.com, and look for the extra links on our page for this episode. Also on our website, you can hear all the programs in our series dating back to 2003. Sign up for a free podcast and email newsletter. Send us your comments and show ideas and learn how you can help support this program with a tax-deductible contribution to our nonprofit organization. That's all happening at peacetalksradio.com. We also have support from the Oppenheimer Brothers Foundation, the McCune Charitable Foundation, the Peace Tales CD Project, and KUNM at the University of New Mexico. Our theme music was written and is performed by Allie Adelman. For Suzanne Kreider, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to and for doing your part to support Peace Talks Radio. Thank you.